Warning, you are about to enter a world populated by the most appalling music ever made. Welcome to the search for the worst album of all time. This is Broken Records. But I hadn't been forgotten, I Joe. I'd been married a long time ago. Saint Bango. <laughs> a girl with kaleidoscope eyes. <laughs> You're beautiful. Hey, hey, I wanna be a rock star. Hello, welcome to Broken Records, to search for the worst album ever made in the long and often embarrassing history of popular music. This is episode number 45. It's a spin-off from the Riot Act podcast, which you can listen to every Friday, alongside me, Stephen Hill. Hello, it's me, and him, Renfrey Deadman, who's also here. Hello, Renfrey. Hello. How are you doing, Steve? How are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm alright, well. thanks, mate. Oh, good. We've had a little bit of a, oh, oh after you, no, you two, you first misses. bit of Frankie Howard, wasn't it? Yes, that was, uh, what a delightful way to start the show. Yeah, definitely. So uh, every Friday, yes, you can go and listen to me and Renfrey wax lyrical about the finest music in uh, in all of the alternative sphere. But we do the opposite here on the show. We search for the worst album ever made. Renfrey, I don't know if you're, you've, you've been having problem with leaks, haven't you? Not the Welsh vegetable, the, mm. uh, the water getting in the house. Yes, it's very thundery and rainy and stormy here where I am. Apparently mm. beautiful sunshine where you are. Um, but yes, we've been having leak issues and therefore I've been having to deal with that. So not that this is important to the listener, but we're recording this much later than either of us have hoped for. But that's OK. Yeah, it, it, it is July. So you'd expect heavy <laughs> rain, wouldn't you? The thing about this country is it's either like live being sort of abused. I think I said being abused in a tumble dryer or being some sort of sea creature, isn't it? You don't really have any kind of middle ground in this in this country. What a shithole this country is. Anyway, enough about that. This is a, quite a negative podcast. I'm not sure it's going to be particularly negative today. Just a bit weird, to be honest. We have a list of records, massive, massive list of records that are somehow considered bad for a variety of reasons it's not me and Renfrey picking them it is in fact contextual uh it's not this isn't a, a smear campaign against any of the records it could be because of their critical standing could be because of the fan reaction the band reaction it could be something else a little bit more um uh difficult to to pinpoint and I feel like maybe this week this one is one of those ones where it is a little bit more difficult to pinpoint because we're going to be talking about number one by Fisher Spooner or to give it its original title, Best Album Ever was the working title for this record. The debut album from the Electro Clash duo, although you know they aren't really a duo, but they are, released on the 26th of November 2001 for the first time. Anyway, this album's been released on about four different labels many many times before so very um, confusing release history and really confusing several mm. different track listings and there was like a dual disc version which was only released in two cities in the world so lots of very bizarre and and i have to say i i've done a lot less research on this one than you have uh on purpose uh and because of my leaks um but yeah uh, i'm i'm vaguely aware of the story but i don't know the whole story i certainly don't know why it was released why this album was released multiple times i don't know well you're about to find out all of you are about to find out before we do though we're just going to run down the top 20 worst albums that we have so far we have 44 records in a list we won't do that we'll just do the the flop 20 
which hasn't actually changed from last week, if you heard last week's show. Um, we start from number 20 in a descending order. Razorlight by Razorlight. Famous First Words by Viva Brother. One More Light by Linkin Park. Super Collider by Megadeth. The Truth Is by Theory of a Dead Man. Slick Dogs and Ponies by Louis XIV. The Cosmos Rocks by Queen and Paul Rogers. Richard Ashcroft's United Nations of Sound. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the original soundtrack to the movie of the same name. Eoghan Quigg by Eoghan Quigg. Graveyard Classics Volume 2 by Six Feet Under. Blood, Sweat and Towers by the Towers of London. Hard to Swallow by Vanilla Ice. Angelic to the Core by Corey Feldman. Philosophy of the World by The Shags. Total Zanarchy by Little Zan. By Little Zan, not Little Zan, as I choked on my own tongue. Uh, Blood on the Dance he Floor. He did as well during the performance of that record, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Blood on the Dance Floor with Bad Blood. The debut self-titled album by Methods of Mayhem. Concerto in True Minor by the, su- the True Symphonic Rockist. <laughs> Uh, to chuck in a, 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 a thing that I haven't done for a little while. Um, Double Wide by Uncle Cracker. And still, still there. Broken Side. I'm not a fan, but the kids like it still comfortably. The worst record that we have ever heard before. But will it be knocked off of its perch by number one best album ever by Fisher Spooner? <laughs> Let's find out. Um, going back to 2001, I have to say, Renfrey, and I think I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm confident in speaking of both of us when I say this was not really the sort of thing that I was listening to in 2001. Fisher Spooner were a name that I saw bandied about a fair bit as the kind of the electro clash movement of the early noughties, a sort of indified revival of early 80s electronic music was sort of happening. But I didn't really pay that much attention to it other than seeing them in the NME really and maybe seeing that top of the pops performance that they did um any thoughts on that period and uh and and any recollections of Fisher Spooner at all from you well first of all you're absolutely right in your assumption um I was not listening to this kind of thing at all at that time I probably I, I was 16 wasn't I so I suppose at that age I still sort of saw this kind of thing as the enemy in that way that uh, teenagers often do um i've uh i've become a bit more lukewarm towards it you know i've 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 thought on this kind of stuff since then there's electronic music that i listen to although it wouldn't be this kind of thing i still even today there's a there's a lot of genres that i've opened up to over the years as i've grown older um but i wouldn't say this particular subgenre electro clash um mm. is something that i was particularly aware of or that I'd really warm to myself. In terms of, had I heard of Fish Spooner? Um, no, not really. The name vaguely rings a bell, but I don't remember anything about them at the time. I would have been working at Virgin Megastore um, mm. at the time that this was released, and I don't recall it from there at all, but there was an awful lot of this, um, of this sort of thing, this club remix kind of thing. This was this was a period where British dance music was considered like a really, really big thing. And so there was a lot of it. Um, I'm saying British, this isn't British, is it? But you they're know, American. But, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but dance music, you know, it, it, mm. it there, there was a lot of it about, so it could yeah. very easily slip through the cracks. Well, you've touched on something straight away, which I think we need to address. Electro clash, right? What is electro clash? There'll be people listening of a certain age, probably who listen to the show, be you 
in your mid-50s or in your early 20s who go, what is electroclash? It's a word that seems to have been dumped in the bin along with swing core, gent, digital hardcore, speed garage and new jack swing and Britpop with uh, stuff that just isn't really relevant anymore. Yeah. Chucked in Britpop there just to annoy a couple of people, probably. <laughs> sort of people that listen to this show probably wouldn't be annoyed by that. But yeah, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of long forgotten new rave. Do you know mm, what I mean? Mm. Who says new rave anymore? And funnily enough, like that's kind of uh, we'll be talking about that in a little bit, probably. I mean, the new wave of American heavy metal. Yeah, it's not really a thing anymore either. Mm-hmm. Either you know, it's just not really a thing. So I think it's important before we get going to kind of state the characteristics of what electro clash actually is. Uh, according to the Wikipedia entry on it, which isn't, as again, bringing up the new wave of American heavy metal, as we discovered when we did our Lamb of God special, not always accurate, yeah. the Wikipedia entry, when they're putting out the driving and corn in with the new wave of American heavy metal and, and AFI, I think, were in there as well. Yeah. Some really yeah. Thrice, some really weird shit. So Fucking you know. mental, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, don't completely take this as red, but... Wikipedia entry says that Electro Clash is a genre of music that fuses 1980s electro, new wave and synth pop with 1990s techno, retro style electro pop and electronic dance music. It emerged in the later 1990s and is often thought of as reaching its peak circa 2002 to 2003. It was pioneered by and associated with acts such as IF, Miss Kitten and The Hacker and Fisher Spooner. So often associated with a kind of performance art aesthetic which may or may not be considered kind of archly ironic in a lot of ways a lot of this stuff came from america a lot of this stuff you know not where the kind of 80s uk sort of synth pop explosion started so much um I've listened and I sort of remember like Peaches as well was something mm-hmm. I know people would like Peaches back in the day. I kind of would have thrown that in as well. I think um, my sort of memory of it was it's quite a kind of elitist, uninviting, sneering attitude to quite a lot of this music. Like it's a joke, but don't ever admit that it's a joke. But anyone who doesn't realise that it's a joke, even though you won't admit it's a joke, is an idiot and isn't in on the joke. So we're better than them. That's kind of what I felt like a lot of this, a lot of this stuff was, and it was quite difficult for me because I was a bit like, well, I actually do like, you know, uh, the you know the 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 artists that you're kind of wholesale borrowing from, your Duran Durans and that, yeah, that and kind I do of thing. actually, yeah, and I do actually think they're good. So you kind of going like. <clears throat> let's do that yeah stupid mm. but we'll make loads of them so I you're immediately like, on mm. the wrong foot with this has been a little bit mm. a little bit yeah i mean the phrase yeah i i mean i do remember just being a bit like mm, not sure about this mm. like it seems a bit like a kind of uh, yeah a kind of unironic reimagining of something which you clearly didn't have a lot of time for in the first place which is funny when you start getting into how the bat this band in particular formed as well not sure about this quite brilliantly and succinctly sums up my view on the top of the pops video which you asked me to watch earlier <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. um so anyway the phrase uh, electro clash was apparently invented by the pioneering german dj dj hell when he came to new york in the mid 90s and the popularization of the genre is credited with the formation of the electro clash 
festival in New York in 2001 by the promoter Terry Lee. Now, uh, Fisher Spooner actually did play that festival in 2001. We'll talk about that, that in, a, in a little bit. But um, the formation of Fisher Spooner, I think, is pretty interesting. So the duo formed in 1998 when the classically trained uh, Warren Fisher, who was at that point making children's tv commercials was um uh was was asked and enlisted to do a short trailer about cool hunters now i didn't know what cool hunters were at the time renfrey and i've since found out that cool hunters were was a phrase again coined in the 90s about a group of marketing professionals who were there to try and find and promote and exploit new trends within art basically art film fashion music cool hunters i've never heard the phrase before no, but neither have i that's the that's the thing apparently wow um, that makes me feel really sad and pathetic just hmm. just your description of that that someone like that exists and that's their job early influencers basically yeah 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 hmm. okay so warren warren fisher was kind of um asked to make a trailer of something to do with cool hunters right and found the footage it never got used but he decided as a kind of joke to put some music over the top of it because he thought the footage that he got was so cheesy and cringy and corny and he found these people so embarrassing that he decided to use electronic music over the top of it as he had total disdain and hated electronic music um Whilst he was doing the project, which actually uh, a performance artist friend, Casey Spooner, we should also say, was involved with the Cool Hunters project originally. Uh, those two would become Fisher Spooner. Um, whilst doing the project, he found that it was a lot harder to make electronic music than he had previously realised. Um, and uh, whilst all this was going on, Casey Spooner uh, had become obsessed with Bollywood and wrote a song called Indian Cab Driver. Uh, after he was apparently hit on by an Indian cab driver. He admits now that it could have been perceived as quite offensive, saying, I sang the song in an Indian accent. (laughs) It sounds pretty offensive, to be honest, just from that description. I got hit on by an Indian cab driver, so I wrote a song, which I then sang in an Indian accent about getting hit on by an Indian cab driver. You want to hear that song, Renfrey? Uh... (laughs) I saw. I mean, I'm intrigued. Um, (laughs) I can't imagine I would ever listen to it twice. Uh, Mm. Yeah. Did you listen to it? No, I couldn't find it. But um, Fisher and Spooner decided to do an impromptu performance of Indian Cab Driver at Starbucks in Astor Place in New York East Village on the 27th of August August 1998 at the invitation of one of their friends who was there. by all accounts, Spooner wore wraparound shades and a Madonna-style microphone headset and uh, described the 40 to 50 song strong crowd's reaction as being aghast <laughs> at what they saw. <laughs> so they didn't get on so well. Um, Fisher is said, in regards to that particular period he, uh, and that gig, he said, I'm making electronic music that I hate of pop music that I never really respected and we are performing at the crassest venue possible so it all felt consistent. Already, right, going into this band, you're like, you are going out of your way to make music that you yourself admit you hate. Yeah, there's an awful lot of pretension to this project, I will say. Mm. Mm. Yeah, 
weird isn't it like that's an i've never heard anyone go yeah 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 when i formed this band it was to see if i could make music that i absolutely fucking hated for people that i didn't really like like it's, that is weird it's like hosting a podcast where you're looking for the worst album of all time it's like the most <laughs> sadistic thing you could possibly do to yourself yeah maybe <laughs> is that in that respect there's a reason why they're there um Spooner said that night when I came home, my roommate said, you found it. You found exactly what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> wow. Um, so uh, that was the kind of birth of the band Fisher Spooner. And as they began to find more, do more gigs, they found more performers and artists that wanted to work with them. And if you look at the list of contributors to the record, I mean, you've got the Wikipedia page up yeah, near mad. you in front of you, Renfrey, the personnel um, <laughs> of people who are actually credited as performing on this record it's all manner of people who probably did less than bez does in the happy mondays and they're getting credited as actual members of the band like wardrobe photography um dramaturgist project manager like yeah there's a lot of wardrobe and web design like you're an actual member of the band for web design for wardrobes yeah yeah fucking Mm. mad um yeah yeah weird yeah it is a bit weird so he started to play more kind of coffee houses and art galleries rather than kind of rock or pop venues or clubs in the new york area and got a reputation for some of the most over-the-top shows that had been put on around that time um it was thought of as being a sort of true deconstruction of the art of pop music so uh they'd be playing tiny little coffee shops with wind machines costume changes backing dancers characters like other characters coming on um elaborate light shows that were far 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 too big for the kind of meager venues that they were playing and um started to get a little bit of a buzz around them in the kind of um new york art scene and the band signed their first sort of label contract if you like with not a music label or a music management company but with gavin brown who's an actual new york art gallery owner and works with art collectives which is pretty unusual right i mean i I can't think of many many bands who signed with someone who doesn't really work in rock or pop music as a medium no not at all i mean obviously there are plenty of people who go from you know one world to the next but then they as in i don't know fashion to music but they usually get music people on board who know what they're doing in the music industry um Mm -hmm. you know i'm sure i don't know this for a fact but i'm sure naomi campbell hired well she did she surrounded herself yeah youth and really yeah really talented musicians and people who work in the industry um so yeah no that that i can't think of another example there probably is but i can't think of another example Mm. um it led to the band doing a full-blown residency in one of Brown's galleries. It was, rather than doing a gig, it was an exhibition, um, which was rumoured to have cost between 10000 and and $100,000 per night and consisted of some seriously patience-testing-sounding six-hour-long performances over a five-day period, all bankrolled by Brown, um, who paid for the whole thing. Uh, during this period or just before this period they wrote the song emerge which is their biggest song by quite by quite some, some considerable yeah. margin um uh, having got a lot of kind of again a lot of kind of hype 
uh, surrounding those that you know that exhibition rather than those shows as you say brown took the show to la in 2001 and um they performed on the construction site of the yet unmade downtown downtown standard hotel um and the likes of rose mcgowan and courtney love turned up to see it by all accounts um the reaction away from the kind of bubble of the new york uh, arts glitterati was one of total bemusement by all, by all accounts um the la times quoted one audience member as saying that it was the best cl- the best crowd for the lamest show i've ever seen which considering <laughs> it was in la I, I highly doubt that it was the best crowd for anything <laughs> at all ever to be honest like la crowds are not usually very good mm. at all are mm. they mm. I mean, they had the same reputation that London crowds have, to be fair, um, yes. which is just sort of standing there and not doing anything and not being that bothered. I don't know if that's strictly true. It depends what show you go to. No. But yeah. Yeah. Um, the irony of all this is that despite <laughs> the amount of money that's been thrown at the band from kind of all kind of areas, Spooner himself was working as a prop stylist in a photography company and couldn't even afford the $2 subway fare to get him to work every day. So he instead had to walk 45 minutes through the streets of New York back and forth to actually get to his job and had literally no money at all um he says i was at the helm of these giant expensive productions but i was absolutely completely destitute it was a really strange conflicted experience to be mimicking great power and wealth and to be at my most tenuous of existence um which you know i think is uh is something that quite a few fake it till you make it in it renfrey yeah yeah i mean there's certainly um there's there's an awful lot of that going on in um modern music i'm like in the last 50 years or so even i know we slag him off and everything but even like motley Crue did that didn't they they made themselves look like big rock stars even yeah. though they were all guns and roses they yeah. said that guns and roses you know like looked like these massive cool rock stars but they were you know sleeping in girlfriends flats and had like one you know sort of little room between the four of them at yeah. some point they were living five of them. they were absolutely living in squalor like mm. no doubt about it yeah mm. um so uh, uh there's a new york-based dj called john selway who loved emerge and began to, began to play his nights and then signed them to release it on his own label and even though at this point casey spooner had decided to pack it all in after the la shows hadn't gone down very well he was like i can't do this anymore he was kind of convinced to go on and tour the upcoming records through europe um number one was also picked up and released by the aforementioned dj hell uh, who, as I said, was the kind of pioneer of Electro Clash, and he released it on his DJ Gigolo label in Europe. Um, but these are not big labels that we're talking about. They're tiny, tiny little labels. Um, so the band played some dates in Berlin and Barcelona before being booked to appear at the first ever, as I said, Electro Clash Festival in October 2001. And it was here where the NME, desperate to find another Strokes or another Interpol or another Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, saw the band and declared finally something new in their review of the show finally something new showing an insane lack of knowledge of the previous 20 years of popular music but um yeah very very nme that isn't it yeah um god does it sound new uh it sounded different for the time surely yeah yeah but new seems like a bit of a stretch to say the absolute least um i mean yeah i bold but we've spoken about bold proclamations from enemy quite a lot on this podcast and i think that's another zinger um Mm -hmm. but yeah it's interesting it it echoes something that um uh that i i assume it's either fisher or spooner 
uh, says in the top of the pops performance, which is quite amusing, which I'm sure we'll get on to. Yes, uh, we will. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Um, still, as much as as the buzz of their live shows was generating, you know, kind of a, a fair bit of buzz, and they were quite a cool name to drop. As I mentioned, you couldn't actually get Fisher Spooner's music anywhere um, until D.B. Berkman of the Warner-affiliated label F111 was keen to sign the band and have the album properly released before the Electro Clash Festival. Now, before the Electro Clash Festival and before the hype that came along with the NME, there was a reported £75,000 offer on the table for number one from uh, F111. Um but after the event, whilst they were still in talks and everything, Berkman actually moved on to Ministry of Sound Records and the hype surrounding Fisher Spooner was leading to some other labels sniffing around them. Um, but uh, Berkman himself was really, really keen to sign the band. He's actually gone as far to say that he admitted that he thought that the Ministry of Sound label was cheesy and rubbish and wasn't signing anything interesting or good and he wanted to actually sign proper artists who were going to release proper albums and not just you know the annual compilation or whatever mm. that, that Ministry of Sound were put, putting out at that point and he was convinced that Fisher Spooner were the artist to sign so when the band were getting ready to tour Europe Ministry of Sound offered to fly them over via Concord and offered them a reported deal worth three million pounds now Casey Spooner himself has said that he was happy to take the Concord, but had said to everybody else surrounding the band that he didn't want to sign to Ministry of Sound, that he was going to take them for a ride by accepting their ride, um, but then said in the aftermath that the offer was stupid, too ridiculous not to take. Uh, but he has also said that it's not the reported three million that people are saying. It, it wasn't that much. But still, that was the sort of, you know this i do remember this is what i sort of remember this band this kind of like new york art house electro band signing to a british massive british dance label for an insane amount of money right and i think this is where the press kind of turn on fisher spooner a little bit there's a piece in the observer i think written by simon price he of loving the manic street preachers fame mm. where he basically tries to do to fisher spooner what steve lamack did to richie edwards pulling back the curtain on the facade saying how ridiculous it was um that you know minister sound had fallen for this joke and call it kind of an expensive bloated grotesque joke as well um there's certainly uh, an expensive also- joke certainly an expensive joke and things didn't go so well in britain um fisher spooner appeared on top of the pops obviously which we'll talk about in a minute um alex needham the editor of the, the enemy said a lot of people thought it was the worst thing they've ever seen they were amateurish and sloppy which was kind of the point um also saying what worked in an art gallery didn't translate very well to television uh emerge got to number 25 on the uk singles chart in 2002 and the band went on top of the pops to play it which is fucking bizarre if you've seen it renfrey and i have seen it it's all fine looking kind of 80s doing mad shit in the 80s when that was super popular but when you look at the kind of blandness of commercial pop at the very very start of the noughties they stand out like a fucking sore thumb the crowd are like the most basic people you can imagine yeah he's got four weird backing dancers a bloke dressed as a tiger (laughs) i mean renfrey fisher spooner doing emerge on top of the pops 
with Richard Blackwood introducing it. Talk me through it, please. Well, I'm with Richard Blackwood, uh, who just seems completely... <laughs> uh, he tops and tails it with just the most bemused expression. It's quite funny. Um, I kind of... It's, it was weird because strange things were happening and it was odd things were happening in front of me and yet I still felt bored and it was a very long sort of three and a half, four minutes. Um, What basically looks like amateur dramatic dancers are kind of dressed up in what, what kind of, I don't know, what are they wearing? There's, there's a great, I'm just going to, I was going to save this quote for, for, for them in a minute, but they played a club in London around the same time. And the Guardian dismissed it as a fashion victim's night out. It's Alec Pastridis who wrote, the audience looked like finalists in a competition to find the capital's biggest ninny. It's as if Siggy Siggy Sputnik have been cast as re- in a regional production of Starlight Express. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a bit like that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It looks like hilariously cheap. It looks like yes. kind of what Dead or Alive would have looked like or like Flockacy. It's going for that kind of... Dead or Alive, Flock of Seagulls, Thompson Twins, 80s kind of art, do you know, Visage, like 80s kind of, um, uh, uh, what like the um, uh, Blitz Kids kind of thing, but 20 years later and not as good, really. It's, it, it, it's, it, it's similar to something that like Annie Lennox would do, but she would pull it off. Um, yeah. It's like an amateur version of what Annie Lennox would do. Um, and there's a gentleman <laughs> dancing at the front, the sort of centrepiece of it. And he's, far be it from me to say this, he seems a little portly for a dancer, I would say. I'm not saying Are you he's... talking about uh, Casey Spooner uh, on vocals? I think I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I'm in pretty good shape. I'm not saying, like, he's fat. I'm saying for someone... I, I, look, I was saying for a dancer, he's quite portly. Mm. But of course, he's not actually a dancer, is he? So, you know, that's sort of irrelevant, I suppose. But, you know, it seems weird seeing someone dancing that as poorly as that. Probably shouldn't do, but it does. Um, and, you know, <laughs> midway through... <laughs> midway through where he tries to G up the crowd um, is just the most hilarious... He's just like, come on, guys! This is the future of music. Get moving, blah. and and the crap. He says, "All right, people, act like you're having the time of your lives. Let's hear some noise in here. This is the sound of the future." I love it. Act like you're having the time of your lives. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, which makes all of that kind of makes a lot more sense in terms of like finding out this is a parody, effectively, because you know, musically. What can you say about Emerge? What can you say about most of this album? It's quite, quite, it's quite, it, it can slip into the background quite easily, can't it? Because it's very repetitive and very kind of. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, we'll talk about it when yeah. we talk about it. Yeah. I think Emerge feels like it would be the obvious single. Definitely, yeah, but it certainly doesn't sound like the future of music, does it? No, 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 no not the vague slightest. Um, yeah, and then, oh, and then they do a Metallica. Uh, cunning stunts Metallica and they 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 get someone on who looks like they're just a fan who's going crazy and shouting well, that's, War- that, that's Warren Fisher that's Warren Fisher that is, okay that makes sense so Warren Fisher even when they play live he plays 
from off stage yeah. at the top of the pops he came on to for his little kind of he's again wearing a headset and a t-shirt with number one on the back yeah. and he's sort of pumping his fist very nice yeah he looks nice he looks cameo he looks like he's not part of the ensemble and he looks like a reveler who's just gone crazy and gone woo. like the only way that could possibly work is if everyone else was going crazy but he stands out like a sore thumb because most of the people in the top of the pops audience are just sort of shuffling about like they don't awkwardly. know what's going on do they they're, they're waiting for going. they're waiting for hearsay to come on that's what they're waiting for they're waiting for hearsay yeah, yeah. they got westlife coming up in a little bit if they're lucky they might get wheatus <laughs> coming on if it gets a bit rowdy they might get wheatus coming on and then this shit happens and they're just like i don't i i, I came here for enrique iglesias <laughs> and will young and i don't know what the fuck is going on and on that level i very much enjoy it yeah because it does look like something weird from the 80s when you could be weird and people go yeah that's cool it's fine well this is weird this has been sort of plonked into the future and the weapon's gone well no we don't we don't we can't we don't know what this is anymore yeah well this is the thing i didn't hate it i was I, i was just a bit confused by it i was just a bit like I don't really know what's going on here and I don't really know what they're trying to say. I don't really know the purpose of this because <laughs> it's not entertainment. <laughs> or is it? I don't know. Well, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. Um, it is one of those sort of a classic Top of the Pops. I mean, it's not a kind of a classic Top of the Pop performance in the same way as some actual classic Top of the Pops performances. But I think you could look at it and go, there's a kind of one of those times where top of the pops went really weird <laughs> something weird happened and it happened and it was weird and it would be if you're going to do a list of like the top 100 weirdest top of the pops performances i think that would get in fairly comfortably yeah i think so i forgot to yeah. mention when our vocalist friend what's his name is it mr fisher or is it mr spooner, mr. spooner. It's mr. spooner. i forgot to mention uh he has a costume thing where his uh his stage clothes are ripped off and then he just emerges yes. in sort of leopard print pants as far as i recall it does and then a glitter bomb goes off that's right yeah yeah it's very camp i suppose it's very camp uh yeah. we haven't mentioned that um yeah it's it's odd it's very strange it's weirdly well thought out and yet amateurish at the same time mm-hmm. <laughs> well they didn't have a manager or a a, 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 a choreographer all the stuff okay. that they would have like they didn't have people like a stage crew mm. very very diy so in that respect you go well you know to get to there yeah i suppose that is quite good um in the end the album sold about twenty five thousand copies in the uk which isn't actually that feels like quite a lot now um now yeah but at the time this is the height of the music industry in terms of record sales 2001 mm. so that's not a lot at all yeah but um the uh the band who were on ministry of sound at this point remember um did a three-night residency performing twice a night in a space in worcester street and the guest list was said to be ten thousand people long ten thousand people on the guest list on a three-night residency even though only 300 people 350 people could fit in per show Hmm. you do the maths on that (laughs) room yes i've done some maths and uh it (laughs) doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense. Uh, but Debbie Harry, David Byrne, Lou Reed, Jim Jarmusch and Bianca Jagger were among those who did turn up to see the Fisher Spooner show. 
um, which apparently was stopped by the police on one occasion. The band only got to play half of Emerge. Nobody knew whether it was part of the show or not. So people were leaving going, oh, it was wonderful. It was a total deconstruction of what. So nobody actually knows if that was meant to happen by the sounds of things. People, <laughs> oh, yes, it was brilliant. Oh, it, it was so meta. They came on to play the show and they weren't allowed to. It's like, no, no, they re- I think they really did get stopped. <laughs> no one really knows what actually happened. I mean, this is the thing when you're ironic all the time. Yeah. Nobody knows what the fuck is going on. Yeah. Um, but it was rumoured that those shows cost the Ministry of Sound um, $450,000 for wow. those three nights and the money was not recouped. So before we go into the next part of it, because obviously... That's not really the end of it, because the album comes out a few more times. Yeah, but the album come out around this point, and the kind of Ministry of Sound thing I think is the the kind of kernel of what's going on here. So we'll review that, or we'll look at the reviews for kind of that version of mm-hmm. it. Um, Rolling Stone gave it three out of five, saying like Britney Spears, New York's performance act Fisher Spooner generates theatre, video, fashion, and hype that's as much a creation as the music itself and like Spears' music the debut album from Warren Fisher and Casey Spooner only sometimes stands its own long stretches of number one sound like the synth pop soundtrack to a vintage video game thin and static but its woozy high points can make you forget the self-described hyper mediocrity elsewhere the 15th transforms Wire's lonely punk ballad into a pulsating keyboard lullaby Emerge mutates 1980s aerobic class beats and self-motivation mantra to reach a perversely catchy pogo dancing climax. It's an alternative galaxy hit in the glorious new wave tradition. And all Fisher Spooner's ridiculous wigs, cats-worthy outfits and desperately artful pleas for attention are just icing on the spandex. Pitchfork gave it 3.1 out of 10 saying the British are coming all over this record once again their music magazines are stained with praise for another monotonous tribute act comprised of snotty white americans but the stakes are considerably lower with this collection of liberal arts dillonettes who reserve three liner note credit slots for wardrobe and one each for hair and stylish but it's so tongue-in-cheek chris how much more obvious can they make it tongue sandwich seven dollars 98 this is the sort of fey posturing that has little place in music today as it did in 1975 but unfortunately rampant cynicism precludes both Fisher Spooner existing in 2004 and anyone caring whether they would still do or not lightning fast media turnover prevents music resolutions acts no longer require staying power and therefore cannot stagnate this short-sighted approach causes one hit wonders and decades of bland recycled song structures but Fisher Spooner are underground how could that apply to them hey these guys were signed for two, for two million pounds don't forgive them their mediocrity just yet number one is a mixture of sounds already available on many human league 808 state and heaven 17 records arranged by amateurs exploring their self-obsessed nerdy sexuality their smash hit emerge is indistinguishable from a number of other tracks on the album but it's but for its slightly faster tempo tempo and an actual chorus uh, Q gave it three stars. I'd certainly go back on that, saying the future of pop only if you've read too many fashion magazines. Entertainment Weekly called it both impressive and pointless. The Austin Chronicle gave it two stars, saying open a sweetness along with the 15th meld wintertime east of the iron curtain beatbox noodlings with a tremendously driving backbeat, and it works to a point. The big the band's big stumble though is an evident lack of soul baby it's made to get your groove on but james brown this ain't with every nuance filtered through as much electronic buggery as conceivable number one is often irresistibly catchy and simultaneously disposable you sure can dance to it but you'll only end up doing the robot 
<laughs> there were actually quite a few good reviews for it as well. Alt Press gave it 9 out of 10, mm. saying, points to a genius that should overtake the world of IDM like a funky tsunami. Pop Matters as well gave it 9 out of 10, saying, it's shallow, pretentious, flamboyant, catchy, and just plain freaky at times. But unlike all of the empty pop music you hear on mainstream radio today, this is one pop album that gets it right for once, and what a pure blast it is. And I think the AV Club nail it, personally, with their 8 out of 10 review, saying, to even acknowledge number one is to endorse a deliberately hollow and airy scheme, but to ignore it is to miss one of the best musical artefacts of the new electro movement. It was voted 34th, in the worst album of all time list that Q did in 2006, hence probably why it got included on this podcast because it wasn't, it's not on lots and lots of worst album ever lists, but it's on a couple, and that was one of the more high profile ones that it was on. It's got a um, perfectly fine Metacritic racing as well. Actually, I'd say even a good one, 70 out of 100, which certainly mm. not broken records fair at all. Mm. But what do we think, Renfrey? Um, number one by Fisher Spooner. What's your verdict? Well, it feels like the music is the least interesting thing about the entire story, the entire project. Um, I mean, I said at the top of this podcast that this is not electro. Like, I'm very picky with the electronic music that I like, and um, this kind of sits between sort of some of the really ambient stuff that I like and the more. Um, more frenetic stuff i like i suppose but by sitting in between those two things it kind of takes the worst elements of both or 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 doesn't find any of the best elements of both to put into it um there's nothing offensive about this record in terms of the way that it's put together it's not badly put together i don't think um and i wonder i don't know maybe the point was for people to not get the joke but then that seems like a very self-indulgent thing because then it's just fisher and spooner just sort of laughing laughing tittering to themselves being like he 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 they didn't get the joke but who knows i mean that there is quite a lot of um pretentiousness to this project by the sounds of it and you know i've i've complained in the past about people over using the word pretentious when i don't think something is pretentious this feels very pretentious to me but the music itself is um i don't think it's awful it's a bit repetitive but then a lot of this kind of dance electronic music is um it's quite forgettable it's quite furniture musically uh it's an hour long so it goes on a bit but it's not terrible is it i don't know no i mean i think this is a pretty good version of something that was happening happening a couple of decades prior to the release of this album and it is a real retread of stuff here's my problem with it it's not the kind of arch irony or whatever i think if you make music a style of music that you don't really like Mm. which is essentially what they've admitted that they're doing here and you're kind of retreading in the footsteps of something which you don't really have a lot of respect for i mean the truly great artists of that era and they are truly great artists i firmly do believe that wrote some genuinely breathtakingly brilliant songs and what's happened i think with all of the kind of electro pop new rave fucking aftermath of this stuff i think a lot of it 
they've never managed to write songs as well or as consistently brilliant as Depeche Mode or Gary Newman or even fucking Nick Kershaw did. Right? Do you know what I mean? There's nothing on here that is as good as at least five Nick Kershaw songs. And Nick Kershaw's <laughs> like a joke at this point. And that's before we even start, you know, talking about the the artists that actually were good and took this seriously and were kind of innovative at the time. Um so, you know, I think what this sort of struggles from is what 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 I struggle with this is it like it's a bit of a shell. It's a bit of a shell of something which I quite like that isn't meant to have any depth to it. It's not really meant mm. to have any depth. Mm. So it's fine that it doesn't. Mm. You know? I think the cover of the 15th by the wire uh, by wire sorry is 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 good i like fisher i like fisher spooner more when they really feel detached and they do a cover of that song which feels completely detached um i think emerge is the kind of the only truly kind of anthemic song on the yeah, record I'd agree. it's the only time they really try and feel anthemic at all and that feels like a bit of a misstep on uh, for them i think because you've got stuff like tone poem which i don't really think is playing to their strengths to be honest it's got hardly any vocals on it it's very quiet like you say it's quite minimalist and I mean, if that's meant to be kind of ironic or meant to be sort of like an arch n- nudge and a wink about something i don't it doesn't have the kind of the giddy camp silliness that emerge has mm. and, and then i sort of go well, well what's the point well so this probably feeds into all the ambient stuff that I really, really like, but I, I quite liked tone poem. I thought it was an okay version of something else that I would listen to, but that's the thing. Like you're saying, it's sort of in between two, like it's in between two points and it needs to either settle on one or the other. You either have to be like absolutely, you know, you'd have to be doing the most minimalist thing that you could possibly think of. And even then, like, it's diff- difficult to satirise that when you have fucking John Cage and stuff like that, 4 minute 33, mm. you know. So it kind of doesn't work either way, you know. And there's times where, I mean, Horizon really sounds like it's a total craftwork rip-off. Yeah. But I quite liked it. Liked it yeah. You know, that right. man versus nature, nature versus man <laughs> on Invisible is so OTT, it made me properly laugh out loud. And I think that's sort of where their strengths should be. I mean, there's the, the, the song, the other song that I really like on it, that I really like on it is Mega C, where she says she's got jizz in her wig. And <laughs> I, I thought that was really funny. That kind of made me laugh out loud. And it's pretty much the only other time other than Emerge where they really go in hard for the same thing which is happening, which is kind of weird. And I kind of, I bet they wish they'd written a few more of them. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because that seems to be the point of this band. Yeah. And and yet you don't... There's not really enough kind of... Considering how ridiculous it was meant to be live. Yeah. And, you know, I watched, a, I watched a clip of them playing Coachella, like a really kind of early version, of, early kind of Coachella performance. And it was mad, you know? And you just thought like, well, the album doesn't... It's like... I mean, it's a weird comparison, but sick of it all so much better live than they are on record yeah yeah but i mean at least sick of it all still sound like a sick of it all show whereas this i'm like see you're mad and yet you're not really doing enough so i and that's not i mean you know this is not a broken you know like when 
if that's your criticism, this is not a broken record. No, exactly. Like, do you know what I mean? It's not a broken record. And I think that it's only here because of various kind of things outside it. But I think you're right to say Fisher Spooner as an experiment, as a thing, is interesting. Whether you like it or not, whether you think, fuck me, this is pretentious nonsense, or whether you feel like you're in on the joke and you're having a nice time. I think there's some pretty good moments on this record. And there are also some moments where you're like, oh, that's really funny, mate. Yeah, really funny. Mm. And, and just not and not particularly interesting. Because ultimately, you might, um, Mr. Fisher, you might hate this music, but you've just proven that, you know, when you said it's, it's actually really difficult to make, yeah, mm. yeah, it is. Mm. And this is proof of that because stick fucking black celebration on yeah next to this yeah 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 <laughs> do, do you know what i mean and the 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 difference is really 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 clear i think in order to parody something well you need to understand it so if you look at this as spinal tap that doesn't feel like it's been made by three people who don't understand the extravagant ott nature of heavy metal um mm. uh, if you look at brass eye it's clear that Chris Morris has watched fucking tons of all those panorama, cutting edge, horizon, all those very po-faced, serious, topical shows that were, you know, it's clear that he watched loads of those and parodied them to an incredible standard. Um, I feel like we must mention Brass Eye on every single Broken oh, Records episode now. We'd love to. <laughs> um, but it just feels like this parody it feels like he doesn't like it but he doesn't understand it either it would have almost it would it, i think like an equivalent would have been like me doing a parody hip-hop record when i was 16 it's like okay you don't like this stuff but you don't you haven't actually made any effort to try and understand it or get it either so do you have a right to parody it if you haven't really given it the shot that it deserves i don't know yeah i mean i think there's enough on it to make me think well he's obviously capable of because it does sound like that thing right like it does sound yeah like a lot of those things i just think maybe that they concentrated so hard on other things and there's you know there's a quote from um from spooner saying you know, like i said like he didn't have any manager didn't have any booking agents so spooner coordinated everything essentially design needs photography music video budgets schedules he did all of that stuff himself even when they were signed to ministry of sound and um i think unfortunately maybe the one thing you know you do have set design and hair as being yeah. credited as part of the album and i think they concentrated so much on haha what would it be like to be a kind of artsy electro band in 2001 yeah that they sort of forgot to write a great record i know some people think this is a great record you know like there are some really good reviews of it we've had already had people on, on twitter and stuff saying to me like oh yeah this album's really good why is it you mm. know why is it on here and i think mm. we haven't quite got to why it's on here fully yet i think mm. this is a record that you that i go look you know what if it came on i when it comes on and when it's on i quite like it mm. But I don't think it's anywhere near essential when you think of the stuff that the weight of stuff that it is just kind of beg borrowed and stolen from. Mm. Yeah, I and agree. I don't think, and I think what you did pick up on, which is very astute, is that you can tell that 
it doesn't have the love of that stuff in the same manner that it kind of needs to to really make this record great yeah well it does feel like it's been written by someone who doesn't like the record itself so it's kind of like well why should i bother to like it if you don't you know um Yeah. yeah but anyway um it's 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 pretty good this you know what i mean like it's not it, i mean it's certainly we'll, we'll go where to where we go to rank it in a minute i think there's moments when it's pretty good. i couldn't sit here and say this is a terrible shit record do you know what i mean no I think there's moments on it that i write that i actually quite like but i don't i think there, there's not enough songs on it i think where it stands in stuff that i really like it's just not on a par with that at all unfortunately i certainly um, can i certainly couldn't call it a terrible record i think maybe we've come to a conclusion that it's a record that the um the initial idea kind of metamorphosized and changed into something which became quite confusing um Mm. and as a result the record the record suffered as a result um but i don't the aftermath will back you up on that as well oh okay oh okay Mm. well let's go into that then so um ministry of sound might have been a big deal in the uk but they did not have the infrastructure to break a band especially a band who spunk money (laughs) like fisher spooner (laughs) did uh in the united states of america and eventually the band were dropped apparently ministry of sound spent the entire marketing budget for the record in three months three months um yes and it was a bad time uh they were about to appear on top of the pops with kylie minogue um, which I, I watch as well. I don't know if you had a chance to watch that. Come yeah, to my world. It's just been a remix. I, I, I did. He just stands there. Yep. <laughs> stands there. Stands <laughs> yeah. behind her. And um, rips her clothes off at one point as well. And and rips her clothes off. Yeah. Which um, is part of the performance. This isn't a sort of. Yeah, I'm not. It's not no. an accusation. Well, we hope. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, they were getting ready to release a second single from the album at that point, but the label um, stopped returning their calls. And. <laughs> um, <laughs> and basically kind of realised that the United States of America was a much bigger country than England <laughs> and it was going to take more money. So they started to pull the plug completely. Oh, that's, Bills weren't getting paid. That's when People they realised That's when they realised yeah. that America was bigger than the UK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were just sort of tossed aside Fisher Spooner. And again, in their native America, the album was not available. And it would be another year before Capitol Records home of Foo Fighters, amongst many others, um, picked up the rights to the record and released it in the US for the first time in May 2003, two years after it was initially released. But by that point, the world had moved on and the band was seen as old hat and a joke with a punchline that had expired years ago. It managed to sell 12,200 records in the first six weeks in the US, which again, good for now. Not great for that amount of money and that investment back then. Um, uh, I found a quote um, from uh, from Blender, the magazine Blender. that said, In signing Fisher Spooner, Capitol Records wanted to surf a subcultural wave at a time that the record industry doesn't know what the next big thing is. It's Capitol's fault to think that cool clothes and good haircuts are the same thing as good music. (laughs) And they were just sort of a little bit behind the zeitgeist and that shit is important when you are a band and when you are part of a movement that you are that the entire point of you is being cool mm. right when you're set up to be like we're this cool underground thing two years later two years is a fucking long time it is 
and those people will move on as we discussed last week with the darkness those people will move on the difference is fisher spooner didn't even get an, an album out while they were the fucking hot <laughs> thing in america so they were completely fucked um capital decided that um they wanted to treat the band like talking heads the band they thought they had they thought they thought they, they were like going there's one executive who was quoted as saying all over the country people want to be cool they're saying we didn't know how this stuff would work in the deep south but then we were like no 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 everywhere around the world people want to be feel like they're part of something cool and they looked at the success of talking heads and they were like well talking heads with this weird thing this weird kind of artsy thing and that crossed over to millions and millions of people but the difference is is that talking heads released an album while they were actually kind of in the process of you know and then followed it up with something better and again yeah the follow-up album 2005's odyssey which saw the band collaborate with david byrne and with linda perry who wrote hits for pink and james blunt yeah who <laughs> um it's more of a classic sound in pop records actual live instrumentation and actual live musicians involved the live performances had them looking like an actual band which was not really what had made them stand out in the first place. No. So I guess even they didn't think the joke was that funny anymore. I actually watched a couple of videos from Odyssey, um, and they do look like one of those, another one of those indie dance acts. It's not anywhere near as ludicrous. It's a bit like the bravery, and I found it rather dull, to be perfectly honest. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, they Weird. carried so on so many for mixed a long... messages. This is like a. This is like it a. Is, isn't it? it's like dating someone who like says they want you one minute and then says they're repelled by you the next it's my life basically yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh they carried on um through to their fourth and final album 2018 uh in 2018 called sir which was co-written and executive produced by michael stipe did you know that well i read it on their wikipedia and i was absolutely astonished i think we should cancel the rem classic albums (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a bit much um and then they announced their split via instagram in 2019 um quite why this record is in the hat is still not entirely clear to me i'm assuming that there's a little bit of inverse snobbery surrounding fisher spooner uh, a little bit of the fact that they never really lived up to or delivered on the hype that initially surrounded them or that electro clash as a genre was kind of sneered at for a while um a couple of years later a bit like new rave became the thing people sneered at like gent became a really dirty word deathcore and metalcore became a really dirty word for a while these genres tend to have a big thing and then a massive backlash and then at this point i think pe- people have just kind of forgotten that it was even a thing but then i think if you look at stuff like um mgmt or uh even like bastille in 1975 yeah i think you can see a bit of you know obviously like the klaxons and shit like that came along in the aftermath of, of all of this and you can see that there's a bit of a parallel to be drawn with what fisher spooner were doing and what became probably commercially more successful later on mm. definitely mm. i mean to be honest i got no beef with fisher spooner it feels like they kind of fumbled the ball a bit but then i don't even know if they ever expected to get the ball thrown in their direction anyway mm. it feels like they lost sight of what they originally set out to do um which is you know like not ideal but it's not like yeah it doesn't it doesn't feel broken 
at all really this record i think it's just a bit boring really (laughs) musically and the story is um i guess fascinating but weird and and and, uh a a bit of a bit of a puzzle it is a bit of a puzzle Mm. it's a weird one because on one hand i'm like well i'm not really sure you ever deserve to get that big lads to be honest Mm. really Mm. and you're getting two million pound or you know was it even two million pound i guess we'll never know Mm. three million pound like there's all kinds of numbers that are getting thrown around about the amount of money they signed to ministry of sound for and they kind of seem to go oh shit we better just act like proper pop stars pretty fucking quickly yeah yeah and i kind of feel like i'd rather they were like this on this record than what they went on to do from the sort of limited stuff i know on odyssey where it's like well that's not even it's not really parodying anything like, i don't you know you're not really doing anything particularly different in 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 that case really mm. um at least they were different for the time I mean, you know the future of music of course not the amount of money that was staying out of them ridiculous the mm. kind of shit that they were trying to do i mean fuck it you know there's there's a point I've, i found an interview with um with Casey Spooner and he compared them to the Sex Pistols and said it was another rock and roll swindle. Right. <laughs> okay. So, you know, they're not they're not backward in coming forward. No. Um and I did look at that and I was like, yeah, maybe mate. I mean, I can see what if he's saying that we we took a load of silly people's money and we just pissed it away, mm. then yeah, I yeah. I think the Sex Pistols did a bit more than that to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's not a accurate comparison, I don't think, in the not slightest. Really, no, no. no. Um, Never mind the bo- so, bollocks is a lot better than this. <laughs> oh my a god, lot yeah. better. <laughs> like, yeah, and and try, it's trying to be good as well. Yeah, um, and succeeding. But I don't really know where to put this because sometimes I roll my eyes at Fisher Spooner, and sometimes I go, eh, "Fair play to him." Like you mm. know, he <laughs> nearly went made Ministry of Sound go bust. That's got to be a good thing, right? <laughs> um, well, uh, I mean, I think we just have to, like, assess it. Well, I was about to say we should assess it on its musical qualities alone, but then we haven't done that with the other albums, have we? Yeah. So that would be a bit unfair. Um, I was kind of looking around um, the number 30 mark. Um, I was looking at Behind Van Halen 3 just above the vines melodia um there's quite a few albums around there black and white rainbows by bush three by van halen melodia rotation by cute is what we aim for two by tin machine which are kind of okay but like not like you know meh they're all right but Mm. it's a little like sometimes it's obvious why they're in there van halen 3 i think mm-hmm. but sometimes less so cute is what we aim for we just found another like pop punk kind of thing mm. not particularly interesting and that that's almost where i feel like fisher spooner should be i mean maybe they could be up above cute is what we aim for just because they had an interesting story behind it as well but i don't yeah. know yeah i mean is this better than because i mean i was initially looking at because i was like well the, the obvious one to kind of go what's better than is this better is one by Dirty Vegas, which yeah. is a, a very, 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 very pointless, boring, like simpering, wet, piss weak, dull, pointless electro 
yeah. dance record. So I, I, think I think this is better. Comfortably better. Yeah, yeah, comfortably yeah. better than that. And that's at number um, And then you've got Streets in the Sky, which is really stupid. What they're by Black Flag, and it's one riff. I think mm. it's better than that. American Life by Madonna. I mean, it's often embarrassing. Mm. Umaguma's got some nonsense mm. on it. Results May Vary has got some appalling shit on it. Primitive Calls, like embarrassing. Black and White. And then you get, yeah, Black and White Rainbows has got some bad shit on it, and they should know better. Van Halen 3 is bad. And then, yes, I think I agree with you. The Vines Melodia, Cute is What We Aim For, and Tin Machine 2 are all records where I go... I mean, I don't like the Vines for the sort of people they are. Um, I don't like Cute is What We Aim For because they're a pop-punk band <laughs> and they're definitely paedophiles, even though we don't know that. And um, and then you got David Bowie. So I'm kind of... I'm kind, Yeah, I kind of... I feel like this album is probably better than Tin Machine 2, though. Because Tin Machine 2's got some pretty... There's nothing on this that made me go, what the fuck are you doing? There's a couple of bits on Tin Machine 2 where I'm like, oh, mate, that's not good, is it? That's actually not good. Okay. I, I thought they were... Ra- uh, if anything, I probably ever so slightly prefer Tin Machine 2. But I'm not really... I, I'm certainly not enough to I don't think there's any... Much, there's so. an, yeah, there's nothing on this that made me kind of roll my eyes like tin machine 2 trying to like like getting bowie off vocals and letting reeves gabrell sing and try and pretending that they were the pixies or nine inch nails yeah i mean i i felt like that was more as i said at the time i think i felt like that was more david bowie being a nice person more than anything else rather than a stupid move i mean it wasn't a very bright move but you know um I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm happy for it to go um, after Tim Machine 2 or before Tim Machine 2. Like, around the 31, 32, 33 mark seems fair to me, certainly. But I'm not too... It's not an album that you... <laughs> it's not an album that really invites a strong opinion one way or the other. That's the thing, this record. No, Which is, I think in a way stuff on it that... Yeah. Well, sorry, I was just about to say, in a way, I think that's why it's a bit of a failure for what it's trying to do. You know. Yeah, that is a, that is a good point actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely prefer it to Cute is what we aim for, and I think I do prefer it to Tin Machine as well. But I don't prefer it to Naomi Campbell. <laughs> I don't prefer it to Naomi Campbell either. So, um, what do you reckon? Is it better or worse? It's either better or worse than Tin Machine, isn't See, it? The only thing, I mean, I have actually just convinced myself out of this ever so slightly because I, I, of what I literally just said, and it didn't occur to me until I said it out loud. But for what this is trying to do, it's a failure. If it is trying to do what we think it's trying to do, i.e. be a parody of this music, it has failed, hasn't it? So for that yeah. reason, should it not go higher? Well, Tin Machine 2 was trying to be Pretty Hate Machine, wasn't it? So we've got a bunch of stuff that's trying to do stuff here, hasn't it? Like, Q's what we aim for, we're trying to be Tom Petty. <laughs> <laughs> um... The Melodia by The Vines was trying to be like this big kind of comeback record as well so that, there, there is a bunch of stuff that was you know attempting and failing to do stuff here yeah, i mean you could mostly say that of pretty much everything on this list but it's just um yeah i guess so. you know that yeah i mean does is in terms of what sounds i think this succeeds in sounding like 80s synth pop more than tin machine sounds like pretty hate machine mm, i think you're probably right yeah and for that reason I think I'm going to have to say that is where I would put it. That was where it would get my um, my nod. Fair enough. So number 33. That's the one. 
Number 33, next to Naomi Campbell. <laughs> Lucky. Who wouldn't want to be there? Uh, all right, cool. Let's do another album then, Rimfrey. I've got my hand in the hat right now, reaching around. Oh. oh. Yeah, don't worry. It's nothing nothing like that. Uh, I've got two, actually, annoyingly. Oh, fucking hell. Now I've dropped both of them. This is... <laughs> why this is exciting. Pull it out, yeah. Well, it is exciting because we don't know what we're going to get, do we? Um, oh, God. Oh, God. I don't want to do that. I already like don't, do not want to do this at all. Um, Love Beach. <laughs> Love Beach by Emerson Lake and Palmer. Oh my god! Which I already just the thought of listening to an Emerson Lake and Palmer album, I do not want to do that. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> but I guess we have to, this don't we? Your idea? To How did that day? get in there? It was my idea. Yeah, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was my idea. All right, good. We'll be back next week with Emerson Lake and fucking Palmer. <laughs> oh, oh god! I've we just, just I've had to just... listen to a bloody. I've just, Dream Theater album. Now we got this. I've just looked at the cover, and it yeah. looks absolutely. It, it's three. It's the three of them in shirts with their chests <laughs> out. It's look. Oh my god! It looks, on a beach, obviously. I love beach. <sighs> I love I beach. Yeah. Goodness me. Oh, it's fifteen tracks long. Oh, there's oh, a twenty-minute song on it. Oh, no, oh Renfrey, oh, no. what is going on here? I might be getting confused uh, with the deluxe edition, sorry. But yeah, there is a 20-minute um, song on it. Oh, yeah, it's not... It's not. Oh, no, no, it is, yeah. Side one looks fairly short. Side two... Oh, it's only 40, is, uh, it's 41 minutes. It's 41 minutes, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Okay. Cool, it didn't get... Got, got bad reviews as well. Anyway, look, we're going to be back. We'll talk, we're not going to talk about that now. We'll talk about Emerson, Lake and Palmer next week. Oh, it's, it's lovely stuff. <laughs> Can we get fucking... Get Duran Duran out of the fucking heart soon? <laughs> um, anyway, thanks very much for listening, everyone. We will see you very soon. Cheers. <laughs>